Hello. Thank you for downloading this Downtown Hope Sermon Podcast. We're a faith-based community in the city of Annapolis, Maryland, orienting our lives around Jesus and exist to see the people of our city, region, and world thrive with the hope found in His gospel. Now, please enjoy the Sermon Podcast. That ugly church, it was a letter written from the Apostle Paul to a man named Philemon regarding a former bondservant or slave named Onesimus. And we are going to have the chance to just walk through that. So if you turn with me to the book of Philemon or Philemon, we're not sure how it's pronounced. There was a little poll this week on Instagram, but actually David made it clear that it is actually Philemon. So I'm going to mispronounce it multiple times this morning. Um, but we will jump into it. Uh, we have Bibles. Uh, if anyone is interested in the Bible, you can raise your hand uh, and you can keep that as a gift um, to you. And uh, we also have a wonderful discipleship resource called The Daily that's on our website. And we would love to have you um, check in on that. And um, would love for the background music actually to get turned off if possible. Thanks. There we go. All right. That would be really complicated or really challenging for me to kind of like hear the music and preach at the same time, but that might, that might be an interesting experiment at some point. Around 48 AD in the city of Ephesus, the Apostle Paul meets this man named Philemon, who was a wealthy Christian who eventually formed a simple church in his home in Colossae. This is a little bit of the background here, Okay. At some point, Philemon had a bondservant, a slave named Onesimus. Uh, we know this from Colossians chapter 4, verse 9. And he apparently had caused Philemon hardship, and whether it was him just fleeing or he may have stole something uh, from Philemon, we don't know, uh, but we find that in verse 18. Whatever it was, there was a brokenness between these two men. And Onesimus has made his way to Rome, and he met the Apostle Paul while the Apostle Paul's in prison. And he came, as Jed said, he came to faith, he came into the new life in Jesus, and he began serving alongside of Paul. Paul knew that there was a relational brokenness between Philemon and Onesimus that needed to be addressed. So Paul pens this brief personal letter from a prison in Rome, probably around 62 AD, to address the brokenness between Philemon and Onesimus. And the implications of this little letter are astonishing. So countercultural is what Paul proposes here, that if we were to allow it to shape our lives, it would radically change how we see one another, and how we relate to one another in Christ. And the Spirit-inspired little letter that comes to us through the centuries is the very words of God. We discover the power of the gospel to transform how we see and relate to one another in the community of Christ. We're going to look at, look at this little letter under three headings. You can track along with me if you like to take notes and, and structures are good for you. We're first going to look at the radical redefinition of our relationships in Christ and then secondly, the implication of the redefinition of our relationships in Christ. And then finally, the resource of the redefinition of our relationships in Christ. So let me read this entire book. We're going to read an entire book together here, 25 verses. Um, and, and, and then we'll dive in. 
Starting in verse 1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So Paul just begins with Philemon just encouraging him and reminding him of who he is in Christ and all the good things that are coming out of the fruit of the church that meets in his home. Verse 8, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sakes I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner for, also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him here with me, but in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment, imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but, by, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive who would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me, even your very self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will graciously be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of conflict in relationships in Christ, in the body of Christ, and the opportunity it affords us to become more like you, Jesus. And we thank you for this, uh, this division, this conflict that happened in the first century that you saw fit to use as an occasion to uh, speak, to pen your words through Paul um, around this situation. We pray that the relationships between Philemon and Onesimus, Lord, we would learn, Spirit would evoke us, and we would consider the relationships we have with one another in Christ and the, and the things that you want to do in us in those relationships. And so we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. First, let's look at the radical redefinition 
of our relationships in Christ. So in verse 1 through 3, Paul greets Philemon and the church in his house. And as I mentioned, verse 4, 5, and 7, he rejoices over uh, Philemon's faith, his love for the saints. They've been refreshed. Um, verse 6, he prays that their, the sharing or their partnership in their faith would become effective for the full knowledge. And we're going to come back to this as a really key part of this little letter. And, but then in verse 8 and 9, Paul says this, there's, there's just one thing I need to appeal to you on, Philemon. There, there's just, you know, th there's a lot of good that's been happening in your church, and there's a lot of powerful things that are happening in your life, but there's this really important thing that I need to talk to you about. I need to appeal to you on. We find that in verse 8 and 9. There's one thing that I need to ask of you. I'm an old man now. I'm in prison, as Paul says, yet for love's sake, he could just command him. He could just say, hey, Philemon, you have to do this. He had that spiritual authority in his life, but instead he says, I just, in love, I want to appeal to you. And the question is, appeal for what? And we find it in verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. I need to appeal to you regarding Onesimus, Philemon. And you can just, we can just appreciate for the moment as Philemon is reading this letter for the first time, and he's probably like, Oh, him? You want to appeal to me about him? Um, probably slightly annoyed. Um, imagine that you owned a restaurant or had an employee in your business who was a significant part of your organization, and maybe one day in closing the restaurant, this employee got up and left, and in leaving, he stole your car, and he stole uh, a couple hundred thousand dollars from the safe, and he takes off, and you haven't seen him. And then all of a sudden, one day, you get an email from David, and David says to you in the email, you know that employee that betrayed you, stole your car and a few hundred thousand dollars and totally tanked your business? I'm writing to appeal to you on his behalf. How would you feel in that moment? I mean, that's not a moment that you're thinking, please, I'd like to read on here. You're like, I don't want to hear anything about him, let alone appeal to me about him. And we see the, the extent of the broken, brokenness in their relationship actually in, the, in a pun, which is in verse 11 in the Greek. Uh, he says um, that uh, this man, Onesimus, is useless to you. It, it, it translates unprofitable. He's going to flip that on its head because what Onesimus actually means in Greek is useful. And so Paul is saying, I realize there is deep, profound brokenness between the two of you. In your eyes, Philemon, he is useless. But I still want to appeal to you. And the radical redefinition of Philemon and Onesimus' relationship is described in verse 10 by the language that Paul first uses to describe his relationship to Onesimus. And here's how he describes him. Do you, do you see the language here? He is my child. I am his father. I became his father. So Onesimus, for Philemon, according to Paul, is no longer defined as a slave or a bondservant, a runaway thieving employee. What Paul is saying here, this man is now your family. He's my child. I became his father. 
And because you and I are partnership, that goes back to that verse 6. He is also your brother. And Paul makes it explicit in verse 15. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. I mean, that, that, is, that is radical language here. Not just until he wrongs you again. Not just until he messes up again. Not just until he sins against you again. Forever. Why? No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Paul says it explicitly. Onesimus Philemon is now your brother. Paul says, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And this is Paul's appeal. This is the new life that we share together in Christ. It radically redefines how we relate to one another, how we see one another, not just transactionally, not just conditionally, but and categorically as something different, as actual family, as blood. Onesimus is now your brother. In fact, we know this because in Colossians, Paul says this in Colossians 4.9. He references Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. Okay. Do you understand what this means? <laughs> this means Jed is your brother. This means Julie is your sister. This means Judy is your sister and David's your brother in Christ, in Christ. When we are brought into the new life in Jesus, those who profess faith in Jesus are our brothers and sisters, regardless of their background, regardless of, of what their history is, regardless of what sort of style within the Christian faith they, they walk. I'm not talking about people who are heretics and outside the bounds of, of, of historical Orthodox faith. I'm talking about your brothers and sisters who might be part of a different denomination. They profess Jesus Christ as Lord. I'm talking about your brothers and sisters who might have different economic status or different skin color or different cultural background, different ethnicity. Okay? We watched a video last week from our brothers and sisters in India. They are brothers and sisters in Christ, in India, worshiping, across the planet, worshiping. And when we meet them here in this world or in the, in the world to come, we ought to rejoice. They are our, they, it is a radical redefinition of relationship. No longer is there a distance there. We ought to treat each other and see each other as brothers and sisters. Yesterday I had this great experience with my daughter. We went and visited um, a, a dear mentor of mine, and he had just had hip surgery yesterday, and he had never had a chance to meet my And we went over to his house, and we brought him some pastries from Bakers and Company, and my daughter had the chance to just visit with him, and he got to pray over her, and she got to pray for him for healing. And it was this beautiful moment, and I'm like, they had never met each other before that moment. And it's like he's like her great-grandfather in Christ right there. And it was the sweetest fellowship we, we, we shared together in that moment. The gospel radically redefines how we see one another in Christ. And that definition is of family. And that ought to secure us to the core. When we come into these gathering spaces, when we break bread in our community groups... When we break bread with our brothers and sisters in Christ from other churches around the city and around the world, we are together as family in Christ. And being family, <laughs> there are implications, are there not? There are many implications for being family. We can laugh about that because the same messiness that's in our own families also are in the body of Christ. 
This is the beauty of this letter and what Paul's going after. And this leads us to the second observation from this letter, the implication of the redefinition of our relationships in Christ. Verse 13, Paul writes this, I would have been glad to have kept him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. So Paul's saying, I could have this with me. He was serving alongside of me. He was being really helpful, really useful. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. And so what is going on here? Onesimus has come into the new life in Christ. He begins working and benefiting Paul. Paul could have had him stay. But Paul holding on to Onesimus would have perpetuated the brokenness in the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. Would it not have? Instead of Paul assuming the relationship was okay, sort of sweep things under the rug, Onesimus is like in Rome with Paul. Who cares if he ever goes back to Colossae? Who cares if he even sees uh, Philemon again, right? I mean, Paul could have had that posture, couldn't he have? So far away. It's a past life. He was forgiven for those things. It's no longer held against him in Christ. These things are true. But instead, Paul knows the importance of family and unity in family. Paul knows the implication of Onesimus and Philemon now being brothers' family. It means they are to live unified and reconciled. And that is the implication of this book for us as a family in Christ. We do not have the luxury of living divided. Small things, major things, when we were in Christ... We are called to work through our conflict. And we can all just raise our hand and say, that is really hard. I'm raising my hand too. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't even ask you to raise your hand. People are raising their hands. (laughs) Here's where we see the call to reconciliation. Okay, this is the implication of being a family in Christ, is we are to live reconciled. And here it is right here in verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, Paul says this, receive him. Receive the person who hurts you. Receive the person who violated you. Receive the person who stole from you potentially. We're not sure exactly what happened, okay? Verse 18, if he has wronged you at all, Paul says, or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Receive him as you would receive me. Nothing is held against him. Utter forgiveness. This is the ethic of the New Testament. This is the ethic that flows right out of who Jesus was, who he lived, what, how he lived, what he taught, the Sermon on the Mount. Colossians 3, 12 through 14 says it this way, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. That's what we are called to as a family in Christ. Ephesians 4, Paul says it a different way in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. It sounds like a pretty radical teaching in June of 2020 in Western American context, doesn't it? And it is. It absolutely is. 
To live in this kind of forgiveness, to live in this kind of reconciliation, to live with this kind of posture is not the spirit of our day and age. Paul says there is nothing that you are to hold against them. He or she, Onesimus, is your brother. He or she, they're your brother or sister in Christ. As weak as they may be, as struggling as they may be, as inconsistent as they may be, as hypocritical as they may be, that is a brother or sister for whom Christ died, 1 Corinthians 8.11. We are to forgive them and live in unity with them. Paul says when a brother or sister is in Christ, nothing should be held against them. Christ has held nothing against How can you hold anything against him or her? And this redefinition of our relationship in Christ gives us fresh eyes to see our brothers and sisters in Christ the way that God sees them, regardless of their past and even what they have done to us or others. And this is the, the beautiful thing that Paul says in verse 11. Formerly, Onesimus was useless, but now he's actually embodying what his name means in Greek. He is now useful to you. He is now your brother. And Paul goes on further in, in, in verse 18 here, if, if, if you listen to it. I mean, listen to the extent that he goes, however he has harmed you, whatever wrong he has done to you, if he's stolen anything from you, charge it to my account. Paul's willing to mediate. He's willing to assume the cost of another's sin. Think about how radical this is. Think about this. Living reconciled costs us something, does it not? It, it is not something that does not cost us something. Paul loses something in this relationship. He may have to literally pay a financial debt on behalf of another. He may lose relational capital. He may lose emotional. Uh, it may be painful, uh, painful emotionally for him. And Philemon loses something too. He loses the ability to control and hold Onesimus under his, does he not? He loses the ability to sort of uh, keep Onesimus under his thumb for how he wronged him. He has to release that. And Onesimus has to lose something too. He has to apologize for however he wronged Philemon. You guys, unity is everything in Christ. In the body of Christ, it is everything. There is so much about unity all through the New Testament. I mean, Jesus to Paul to Peter, they are constantly talking about how vital our connection is to be unified in Christ. This is why it grieves my heart so much when we as brothers and sisters in Christ slander, condemn, and critique others in unhelpful and unhealthy ways. It is too easy right now to inhale the divided climate of our culture. And I don't really care where you, what, what sort of political uh, spectrum you stand on. It is far too easy to breathe in and inhale the divided spirit of our culture and then exhale that pain upon one another. And one of the greatest grievances in the church right now is that we do that with one another. We're Fearful of the culture, we're so scared out there, we breathe in all the divisiveness, and then guess where we exhale? Right on our brothers and sisters in Christ. Critique, yes, no church is perfect. No individual is perfect. None of your brothers or sisters, this is not a message that says don't hold people accountable. Not at all. Absolutely we have to hold one another accountable. The Christ is making his bride beautiful, and he uses us to do that. But do not let it be about our own hurt. We bring that to the cross 
We find security and forgiveness, and then we come in love to talk about the real things that need to be tended to and the real issues of reconciliation that we have to work through. Okay? This, is, this is my life in real time right now. Real story, real talk. Can we do that? Okay? In my neighborhood, we're having some conflict with some neighbors o- around our kids. Okay? It's, has anybody ever had that situation happen before? It's messy, isn't it? But here's the thing. They're believers. They profess the name of Jesus. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so do you know everything in me wants to just push it under the rug and not deal with it and just kind of just deal with our kids and, and, and not work through it? I don't have that luxury in Christ. So I think every day this last week I've been on the phone with my neighbor. <laughs> and we are talking through this thing in, in love for one another. And, and, and we're having those awkward conversations of, hey, that text message that I sent you probably sounded a little bit harsh. That wasn't my intent. We got on the phone and talked through it. We met in person. It's a lot of work. It costs something. And yet I'm telling you, this, the sweetness of the fruit that's coming from it, our kids haven't figured it all out yet, as, but as couples, we are working through this thing, and we're in this thing together because that is what we are called to in Christ. And it, it, is, it takes time, it takes energy, it takes pain, it's frustrating, it's discouraging, it's all those things, and it's absolutely beautiful. Because we're working towards the vision of what Christ has called us to in him. The implication of being family in Christ is that we are to live in forgiveness and reconciliation. And the last observation, the last question is, how is this possible? How can we ever live in this kind of radical vision? I'm glad you asked. And in verse 17, this is our last observation. The resource for the redefinition of our relationships in Christ, the resource for the redefinition of our relationships in Christ. Verse 17, really important phrase here right at the beginning. So if you consider me your partner. Now the word partner in our 21st century context might sound like, oh, this is just a business transaction after all. Actually, the word here in Greek is incredibly important. It's the word koinonia, out of which we get the word fellowship. It's the same word that Paul uses in verse 6 when Paul first begins to appeal to Philon when he says, I pray that the sharing of your faith, the koinonia of your faith, he's not talking about like going and sharing the gospel with those who don't yet know Christ. He's talking about the partnership that they have, the fellowship that they have in Christ together. And Paul says here in verse 17, if you consider me your partner, if you consider me your brother in Christ... Paul says to Philemon, if you think of me as your brother, then you receive him as you would receive me. And I will pay anything that he owes you. This word in Greek means fellowship, association. It means communion. It means intercourse. That's literally what the Greek word means, okay? That is the intensity through which the foundation of our relationship in Christ, that's the imagery that God gives us in who we are as family. There is an adhesive, there is a bond that is inseparable. And this is the resource that Paul appeals to 
as he is writing to Philemon. He says, Philemon, if you and I share in this intimate communion, so does Onesimus. And the question for us is then, well, what is this fellowship about? What is this koinonia that Jesus spoke of that the New Testament continues to talk about? What is this actually about? Where does it come from? 1 John chapter 1, 1 through 5 gives us this beautiful picture that defines this language of koinonia. John writes in a different letter to a different community, this is what we proclaim to you, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and our hands have touched considering the, concerning the word of life, and the life was revealed, and we have seen and testify and announced to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we announce to you too, so that we may have, so that you may have fellowship, koinonia with us. And here's what he says in verse three. And indeed, our koinonia, our fellowship, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, this is the gospel message, verse 5. We have heard from him and announced to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. There is a fellowship, a communion, that our communion is rooted in. There is a love that our love is rooted in. There's a reconciliation that all of our relationships, reconciliation in our relationships are rooted in. We were enemies of God in our sin. The scripture tells us that story. It's a painful part of the story to hear. But God came in love to reconcile us to himself through his sacrificial death of love on the cross. And what does he do for us? He pays the debt that we owed. He says, that is my son and that is my daughter. And nothing else is held against them. Bringing us into koinonia with himself the koinonia that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have within themselves eternally. We were God's enemy, but God in love made provision for us to become his sons and his daughters, and we are then ushered into the family of God, the family of God that calls us to be reconciled, the family of God that is rooted in the fellowship that we have. And this is why when the New Testament talks about the kind of reconciliation and forgiveness we have to live in, what I read earlier from Colossians and Ephesians, remember, uh, I'll just read it again, uh, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. Do you know what Paul then writes? As the Lord has forgiven you, so also forgive. And then in Ephesians, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. It's never just a command for us to just go do it on our own. The, the fellowship that we have with one another, the family that we are with one another, is rooted in the family of who God is and what he did for us on the cross. There's a great old song that some of you may have heard growing up. It's a, it's a hymn song titled, Have You Seen Jesus, My Lord? Anybody heard this song, familiar with this? The lyric is really powerful, and the last verse uh, says this. Have you ever stood in the family with the Lord there in your midst, seen the face of Christ in each other? Then I say, you have seen Jesus, my Lord. Who do you see when you see me? Who do you see when you see the person sitting next to you? Who do you see 
Do you see your brother and sister? Do you see your family? That's who we're to see. That's what this letter's about. That's the way that Christ has called us to live as a family. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this letter. Thank you for um, the truth that it bears upon our lives and our minds and our relationships, the ways that it stirs us, the ways that it causes us to sort of push back and say, how can this be? I don't want to do that. What about this and this? And Lord, thank you for the ways that it convicts us, your spirit convicts us through it. And you know each person in this room and you know the way that you want to continue to shape our lives in Christ together as family. And so I pray that you would do that this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to come to the table this morning, I just want to give us a few minutes. Thank you.